0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jay from Practice and Research Together. Thank you all for signing into today's webinar titled Supporting Pregnant, Lactating, and Parenting People Who Consume Cannabis in Ontario, Part 2, by Dr. Allison Ion and Michelle Maurice. Uh, Before we begin, I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the land upon which I was born and raised, once called Thundering Waters, now called Niagara Falls. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish with One Spoon wampum agreement. The dish in the agreement represents the land that is to be shared peacefully, and the spoon represents the individuals living on and using the resources of the land. This agreement is one that celebrates the spirit of reciprocity and creates space for the awareness of environmental sustainability, along with the responsibility to ensure that the dish is never emptied as we take care of the land and all of the living beings on it. It is important to understand the long-standing history that has brought us to reside on these lands and to seek understanding of our place within this history. It is in this spirit that I would like to share with you where I am situated in the present. I am a non-Indigenous person raised in the territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples by my parents whose, parent, whose, their, whose own parents left their own traditional territory to settle on this land unaware that by doing so they were complicit in the attempted genocide of indigenous indigenous people by church and state my family was further complicit in this act by unknowingly supporting the forced removal of indigenous children from their home communities and culture by adopting an indigenous child who is my brother when my parents inquired about keeping my brother attached to his culture back in the 70s, they were told by the Children's Aid Society not to pursue any connection as it would only confuse him. I'm now the mother of an indigenous daughter and grandmother and auntie to many young ones belonging to the Nishka Nation. It is through this lens that I now witness how intergenerational trauma and the residential school system have impacted the indigenous community and my family and also how important the reclamation of traditional ways of knowing and being are be it through language, ceremony, food sovereignty, or land back. I choose to acknowledge that colonialism is an ongoing affair. We must build upon our awareness of our present participation within it, as well as actively participate in the decolonization of our mindsets and dismantling the systems within our government and communities that continue to repress Indian Act, enacting the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and supporting the development of basic infrastructure in Indigenous communities. I encourage every non-Indigenous person to take some time today to reflect on the privileges afforded to you by colonialism and consider what action can be taken at home work and in your own community to support reconciliation. Thank you for hearing me. As usual with our presentations, the PowerPoint slides will have been sent out to everyone registered for the webinar. They will also be uploaded to the Part Canada website after the presentation today. Throughout the webinar, please type any questions or comments into the chat box at the bottom of your screen. Part staff will type answers to any logistical questions throughout, and we will leave time at the end for the presentation for the presenters to answer any questions. After the webinar, any remaining questions can be sent to us at our email, the admin at parkcanada.org. We'll do our best to answer those questions or pass them on to the presenters if we can't answer them ourselves. Like all of our webinars, this presentation will be recorded and then archived on the PART website. To access the recordings on our website, you just need to visit archived webinars uh, under the resources tab, that is along the top of the page. There you will find the video recording of this webinar, also an audio only version, and as as well the practice points, which is the one page summary we write about the presentation, um, and also any special resources that our presenters ask us to share. We will always send out a short evaluation survey to all attendees after the webinar, along with the practice points please do take the time to fill it out. It's important to us to know what we're doing well and what we could be doing better. And lastly, please follow us on social media. We list all our new resources on Twitter uh, and Facebook, as well as post links to relevant community resources. Stay stay tuned for our uh, soon to be launched Instagram account. I wanted to remind everyone that here at Part We view research as part of the process of evidence-informed practice. Evidence-informed practice is defined by four key factors. Case context, child, youth, and family preferences, research evidence, and worker, supervisor, and organizational preferences. Uh, The research evidence piece is the part of the equation that we like to focus on here at PART and to help workers better understand what the research is saying about a specific issue and how and if you should use these findings in your decision-making. Our webinar presenters are experts in the area of research pertaining to their field and area of interest. We can use this research evidence and knowledge in conjunction with our practical knowledge to better inform practices and policies. If you want to learn more about evidence-informed practice or evidence-informed decision-making, please visit our website and go to the EIP Academy. We also have a fantastic guidebook on evidence-informed decision-making there. I'm now going to introduce our presenters for today. Uh, With with us again, thank you so much for joining us, is Allison Ion. Uh, Allison is an adjunct professor adjunct assistant professor in the School of Social Work at McMaster University. Allison has contributed to community development, education, and research in the areas of HIV, women's health, perinatal care, peer support, collaborative mental health care, and the social determinants of child welfare involvement since 2001. She is is passionate to discuss ways that learnings from community-based research can be operationalized in child welfare practice. And also with us, we have Rochelle Maurice. Uh, Rochelle is a clinical and organizational ethicist in Toronto, Ontario, currently pursuing doctoral studies at McMaster University. Her work in ethics was strongly influenced by her background in social work, the most recent of which was in the neonatal intensive care unit and pediatrics department at a community hospital in Toronto. As a result of her experiences in both social work and ethics, Rochelle has an interest in and passion for addressing equity issues that affect pregnant, birthing, lactating and parenting people at the intersection of health and social care. We are very excited to have both of you here with us today, and we're looking forward to this sequel to the excellent presentation um, that we shared with our partner our, with our Um, audience last week. Um, And on that note, I'm going to hand the screen over to you. Stop my sharing. There we go. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. No problem.
1: Yeah. And I want to say soon, this will say Rochelle Maurice, PhD candidate. Everybody send good vibes out into the world as Rochelle is on the cusp of flying, passing with flying color, colors for comprehensive exams. So it's very exciting.
2: Amazing.
1: Um, just want to give that shout out. We are so excited to be here today. And we know that there are some um, tech things. So we're kind of talking out into the, you know, the abyss of Zoom. Um, and we're going to, so we're going to tweak our approach a little bit. But we welcome for you, any, anybody that's tuning in kind of after the fact that, you know, please reach out to us with any sort of um, questions, comments, reflections. We really do You know, want to kind of make make sure that there's that marriage between research, knowledge and, you know, um, application to practice. So um, please see us as a resource going forward. So, yeah, so like Jay said, we are here to do um, the sequel part two of our talk about cannabis. And we definitely want to give a shout out and acknowledge funding from the Mental Health Commission of Canada um, that has really made this this webinar series possible. We also want to thank Jules Konkovi, uh, who is an, a student in our MSW program and has been working with us as a research assistant uh, who has been um, valuable and a, a critical member of our team to collate um, and put together the information that we're sharing with you today. So we really appreciated, Jay, your, your introduction and um, Rochelle and I you know, really also wanted to take a moment Uh, to share with all of you how we are located in this work Um, you know really beyond our bios and share how we have come into this work through our academic practice personal and political commitments. Um, We did share this last week as well, but we think it's really important to you know always um, ground ourselves in, in the work that we're doing. Um, So for myself, I do have a history of doing community based research and practice that's really coming from a reproductive and rights based approach. And so my work has really centered around the experiences of pregnant folks and parents who are living with HIV and who consume cannabis and other substances. And so I have also more recent uh, direct frontline child protection practice uh, through a children's aid society in Southwestern Ontario, which has been part of my MSW credentialing. However, I do come into this work with a lot of personal experience as well, um, navigating the medical cannabis system and cannabis consumption for physical and mental health, both for myself, and also for my partner um, who passed away um, in, because of his ongoing substance use and mental health challenges. And so I have actually witnessed firsthand how cannabis is considered and responded to in mainstream healthcare contexts. And so I'm bringing that lens and experience um, to the discussion today. Like Jay offered as part of the land acknowledgement, we also think it's important to connect our discussion to our commitments to decolonization, land back, land reclamation and indigenous sovereignty and recognizing how we're implicated in colonization. And so for myself as a settler, um, you know, I too am part of the system that maintains colonial values and ideals um, in systems like child welfare. For myself, I live and work on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee and Mississauga nations and also within the the lands protected by the dish with one spoon wampum. And like Jay shared, you know, this is really about peaceably sharing and caring the resources around the Great Lakes and how we are in relation with each other and with the land Um, and thinking about, you know, um, our relationships and commitments and responsibility um, to ourselves and to decolonization and how those values are really kind of woven into our practice and approaches as social workers. So I'm gonna hand it over to Rochelle, who's also going to introduce herself
3: and take you through um, the next few slides. Thanks so much,
2: Alison. So I come to this from the perspective of uh, from my previous role as an NICU social worker, um, where I have been involved with pregnant and birthing people who have consumed cannabis for different uh, reasons and in varying ways. And so when I did that transition into a clinical ethics role, I started to think a lot more about how we conceptualize risk and harm, especially in this context. And I'm echoing what Allison and Jay have mentioned about the land. I come to this land um, as someone who was not born here and I acknowledge my gratitude for the land, my responsibility and my commitment to the stewardship um, and land reclamation. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to share in this space
3: with all of you.
2: So in today's session, uh, we will talk a little bit, uh, we will actually provide an overview of possible practice and structural solutions for engaging in social work uh, and child protection work related to cannabis, pregnancy and parenting. And we'll also review case scenarios and apply insights gleaned from the webinar content and from each other, and we'll share some resources. So with this and in this presentation, uh, I wanna signal our in, the intentionality behind our language. So throughout this webinar, we are aiming to promote inclusivity around pregnancy and parenting um, and in, the, in terms of the language that we use. So we will say terms like pregnant individuals and parents versus terms like one, women and mothers. Um, and in this, we aim to ex- expand and sometimes challenge how we know risk, harm, risk reduction, motherhood, etc. cetera. And so the, lang- the language that we use is not to critique or admonish, but instead to introduce a critical analysis and dialogue about how our words, terminologies, language uh, has meaning and impact. So where did we leave off? First, I'll encourage you, if this is your first meeting of us and this concept, I'll encourage you to take a a review of last week's session that's available uh, just on video recording. And so last week, what we did was go over some clima- clinical and epidemiological research about cannabis consumption during the perinatal period. Uh, what we highlighted was the lack of clear and concise information to, that guides decision-making. And we talked about the implications for social work practice in assessing cannabis as risk and the impact of cannabis consumption on caregiving. We also touched a bit on the stigma- stigmatization of cannabis. We'll get into that a little bit more here as well. So we, we started to explore what are some barriers for folks to talk with their health and social care providers about their consumption, including benefits and challenges. Uh, and we also touched on a fear of punitive responses, such as the initiation of child welfare involvement or exacerbation of, of existing child welfare involvement.
1: Thanks, Rochelle. So we, we always think it's important to talk about harm reduction. And so we did begin to go into this last week and we think it's important to do so again uh, before we continue along um, in, our, in our discussion. And so, you know, we very much acknowledge that how we know harm reduction as people, as service providers can be quite variable. And we also know though that reducing harm in social service contexts can sometimes mean removing the the consumed substance altogether. That there's a conflation um, of of safety with abstinence. This idea that children can only be safe when there is complete abstinence or complete stoppage of usage of the substance altogether. We know though that ideas about harm and substances um, and and kind of the, the views and norms that come along with those things can promote certain ideals and values. And that these ideal, ideals and values can very much be grounded in you know, classism, Eurocentric ableist views and norms that could actually be very different from the folks that have other kinds of lived experiences. And so sometimes there's a disjuncture or disconnect between you know, what the person sitting in front of you is saying and experiencing and expressing based on their from their lived experience and what we are imagining and and, um, treating as a problem or a worry um, as folks on the the service provision side of things. And so the reality is, and what we're going into this conversation acknowledging is that abstinence may not actually align with the caregiver's realities especially when we think about cannabis, if they're experiencing certain benefits from their consumption. And we talked last week about what those benefits could be. And again, there's a, a wide range of things that folks experience um, when they're consuming cannabis. So what we thought could be helpful is to actually sit with and, and review you know, some of the tenets of harm reduction. And actually offer some, you know, practical, concrete ideas about how harm reduction as a philosophy could be operationalized in a child protection context. So we're going to actually go through these tenets with you kind of one by one. And so the first one is actually thinking about taking a human rights-based approach in our practice. And what this can look like and feel like is being non-judgmental, non-stigmatizing, non-coercive in the ways that we provide support. And we like to think of this as practice that is grounded in a social justice and critical orientation. That's all fine and good. You know, we can use these buzzwords and, and talk in this way. And so we're, we're thinking, you know, well, how do we then apply this to our practice? And so what we're inviting everyone to think about is, you know, how does the way that we work with folks actually nurture a sense of connection, respect, inclusion, and dignity? How are we actually going about our work in ways that recognizes and actually upholds the autonomy and agency of the caregiver and the wider family? We like to also think about transparency. you know, are the notes that we're taking would you actually show them to the clients that you're working with the, the correspondence and the ways that um, you know workers kind of talk with each other about a family? would it would the with the person on the receiving end of service? if they were sitting in the room, how would they feel if they were hearing the things that were being said about them? There's this really wonderful article and I'm happy to share it um, if folks are interested. Um, and it's this idea of practicing from a love ethic. And it's really interesting when we think about love and boundaries and professional boundaries, but you know, love as kind of a quality is often marginalized in professional social work codes of ethics. This is something that occurs internationally. And yet, if we think about more of an emancipatory imperative of social work, feminists like Bell Hooks promote love as actually a political process to transform systems of injustice. And so Hooks is actually promoting this idea of the love ethic, which is a model of more relationship oriented practice that is about dialogue, nonviolence, interconnectedness, reflexivity, sharing of power and solidarity. And so, you know, we really invite you to think about this idea of how love can be part of your practice. And the article actually does go into some practice suggestions for a love based social work um, approach. And I'm happy to share that if, if folks are interested. The second tenet of harm reduction is meaningful engagement. And so, really, what that's about is supporting the leadership of people who use substances in policy and service development, implementation, and evaluation. Again, great. Awesome. How do we actually do that? So when we think about direct child protection work, so folks may be working in investigation, in ongoing family services, what this could look like is actually thinking about how the safety assessment that's done, how the service plan that's developed, and other processes that are part of the standards that workers do are actually being collaboratively and transparently co-constructed. So absolutely, workers um, in consultation with their supervisors are going to arrive at a meeting with their best hopes, having reviewed the file, and and kind of thinking about what it is that they're maybe going into in terms of how it's been um, coded through the spectrum, eligibility eligibility spectrum, or um, if it's been a handover from an investigation to an ongoing worker. However, we also know it's, it's imperative to integrate the strengths, worries, and intended actions of the family. And, and that includes the caregivers that may be using cannabis um, and other substances. Another example that we um, you know, like to think about is when it comes to um, access visits, or even um, if, a, if, a, if there's like an, going to be the arrival of a, of a new a baby, you know, thinking about the caregiving situation and the possible kin arrangements that could be made for that family. And so, if a family brings forward ideas around who could be part of that kin care arrangement, you know, it's this idea of meaningfully engaging all possible players and exploring all of those possible caregiving scenarios, even if and when something like cannabis and other substances might be present um, in that family. The next tenet is about pragmatism about substance use. So the reality is, you know, substance use is a part of our world, and it might be something that is being dealt with, you know, in the moment um, in a family. As we um, talked last week, you know, there's a lot to know about cannabis um, in terms of its effects on the body. And so we need to be rational and pragmatic about the fact that there is this very wide spectrum as to how cannabis can influence the body. And so this actually comes into Play when we think about risk and kind of um, impact of that substance use on the caregiver, and then what that means for the child uh, that that they're looking after. And so some of these things actually relate to the actual potency of the cannabis. And so you're going to see a very big difference between something that has a very high THC level, as compared to a strain of cannabis that has a very low THC or and high CBD um, ratio. Because the the THC, like we talked about last week, is what actually causes more of those euphoric and sometimes narcotic um, and and kind of psychedelic effects on the body. Same with how it's being consumed, Um, edible ways of consuming versus more combustible, vaping, smoking. But again, this is very individual. And so this is where you have to actually learn from the caregiver how they consume, what they consume, and the impact of that consumption on their body. They're gonna know it more so than anyone else. And then again, putting it kind of in re- relative, um, relative to other substances. So for example, um, you know, people can overdose from things like fentanyl and other um, opiates versus something like cannabis, which it has other effects on the body altogether. The other thing that we really wanted to be pragmatic about about is the fact that the reality is that people's substance use behaviors and also the ways that they engage in health and social services is very much influenced by structural issues, racism, classism, um, and also kind of the norms and experiences that they have, how they've been socialized and conditioned. And so if and how they consume depends on kind of what is happening around them, how they cope, you know, um, barriers that they might be experiencing. And this also means um, and relates to if and how they might engage with services like child protection, right? If they're avoidant, if they're cautious, there could be good reason for that because maybe they've had, you know, negative experiences in the past. Um, Maybe they've experienced racism and, and are fearful and cautious around around such things. So when we think about application to practice, um, you know this idea of adjudicating some, somebody's substance use as risky and unsafe, ask yourself the question, you know on based on what knowledge and what experience have I actually classified this substance and the impact of that substance um, as risky and as unsafe? Wh- where is that coming from for you? what knowledge are you drawing upon to uh, arrive at that conclusion? I've also been hearing lately, this idea of, um, child welfare thinking about doing risky things safely. And so thinking a bit outside the box around, um, if there is substance use cannabis consumption present, you know, what can, how can that caregiver still be actively involved and, and, um, take on a caregiving role? So for example, Um, Just because a parent has consumed cannabis prior to, or even taking a break during an access visit, does that actually impact their um, ability to look after their child as part of that access visit? And then also just checking, you know, checking in with ourselves around substance use and how we view it. So we talked a lot about this last week, you know, cannabis, not as the, the substance, not being inherently viewed as bad or deviant and just thinking about if and how we equate substance use with bad parenting. So last one for me, and then I'll hand it back to uh, Rochelle. The last tenant that I wanna share with you is around really thinking and targeting risks and harm. And this both relates to kind of the micro individual reasons why somebody might be consuming a substance, consuming cannabis, And also kind of those macro or structural causes of substance use, which are things like um, trauma, you know, um, poverty, these systemic um, structural issues. And so what we want you to be thinking about is, again, this idea of reframing the individual responsibility for substance use and to instead actually consider this person is choosing to consume this substance. What is their intentionality around it? particularly for something like cannabis, which you know, might be actually providing them with um, relief of certain symptoms. It, they may actually be viewing it as a positive to optimize certain aspects of their physical and or mental health. And so what we're, we're asking you is rather than um, problematizing it and, and kind of focusing on the elimination of the use, inviting more of a candid and open conversation about the consumption. What are the reasons behind it? What is the intention in consuming it? What are the caregivers worries or challenges around the consumption? Actually invite that kind of a conversation because then together you can be thinking about a safety plan related to that substance use if the impact of that substance use is um, considered to be um, a potential harm to that child. The other thing around targeting risks and harms is more of a macro issue. And so, you know, for those of you that are in supervisory, managerial, leadership roles, you know, it's this idea of thinking about the role of child protection agencies to actually address structural inequities. And so we know that there's been a lot of challenges around funding prevention work and thinking about doing that upstream work of of preventing families from even coming into, you know, the child welfare system. But we also know that on ongoing workers can focus on admission prevention. Access programs can focus on admission prevention um, through kind of ongoing family support. And it's also about who are the who is the web of of services that is kind of supporting this family, both informal and and, and formal. So you know, extended family support networks, but also more formal services that actually address these structural factors. So thinking about addressing somebody's trauma, financial insecurity, housing instability, all of those things, child welfare can absolutely play a role in those things, which can then address
3: maybe the reasons for um, their substance use. So over to Rochelle.
2: Thank you. So now we're looking at a person-centered approach and starting to think about what are the needs, preferences and values of the caregiver who's consuming substances. And while there is no universal application of a protocol or child protection standard, the the thing that we're really focusing on here is uh, the need to meet people where they're at, you know, social work 101. And essentially when we think about this in terms of a practice context, uh, we think about things like uh, the safety assessment and family service plan. Are they, a visual, are they individualized and to into what degree? Um, in what ways has the caregiver co-created the service plan? And when we're talking about co-creation, uh, it's moving beyond uh, a contracting type of discussion or negotiation and beyond expect, expe- expecting mandatory deliverables. We're moving on beyond that. And it really focuses on, it builds on, some of the the other frameworks that Allison has talked about uh, just prior to this, and really starting to center the person, what their needs are, and how do we create uh, safety with respect to that? And, you know, the crux of all of this is thinking about how do we share our our power as child protection workers with families um, versus always having power over them? It's interesting because, you know, these roles can be taken up in that particular way, but uh, sort of pushing back against that notion of power and power over and using a co-creation model to really, to really shift how, how we think about power or how power is, is deployed in this context. And then finally, there's lived experience, uh, acknowledging lived experience as valuable um, and valuable knowledge. So in this context, we give attention and power to the stories, experiences, and perspectives that caregivers share and view them actually as empirical evidence. It forces us to think about how we think about truth and what counts as truth to us in these roles and acknowledging that truth as as it is framed informs and guides our decision-making as social workers. So if we destabilize this notion of what we now consider empirical evidence and what we count as truth to really center the stories and experiences and perspectives of the caregivers, then that tackles truth and how we, and, and how we think about truth as a, as a concept. So materially, what does this mean? you start to ask yourself the question, do you believe the caregiver? And interrogate that answer, why or why not? It asks you to think about what strategies, approaches, and work uh, have the caregiver used before. And it encourages sort of observing and acknowledging their substance use and engaging with services. Like these, these are the things that we're looking for.
3: And so this is a good pause point. We've
2: we've talked about a lot and we've offered a lot. And so we're pointing you now to to, to take a deep breath, to pause and engage in some critical reflection. And I'll invite you to ask yourself this, these questions, and continue to ask yourself these questions beyond this presentation. So who are you accountable to? And in what ways? How so? Are you, is there accountability to a hierarchy uh, within the organizational structure? Or is there an accountability to families? Is there accountabilities to other people or other structures or other things that haven't been captured here? And in what ways? And acknowledging that it doesn't have to be an accountability to one particular thing. It can be an accountability to hierarchy, to families, to other things um, with varying degrees and pushing and pulling uh, and in, de- in, in varying uh, settings and, and reasons. I'll also invite you to think about how might our practice standards, our practices, our standards and policies cause harm for people who use substances. So, thinking about harm reduction is not is about minimizing the negative health and social impacts associated with substance use, but also the harms caused by specific policies, laws, services, and institutional practices. And then finally, how does our practice uh, how does our practices reflect and embody the values and principles of social justice? So take take some time to think about that now and going forward um, and welcome your questions and responses uh, via email
3: uh, after you view this presentation.
2: So now let's anchor this a little bit and into this, this discussion about the intersection of cannabis and child welfare. You know, there's. we can all acknowledge that cannabis may not be a harm-free substance in all situations. But what is the harm? And when I ask you that question, I ask you to also think about how do your organizations approach harm or harm reduction related to cannabis? And how does that frame your thinking, how you resonate with what is the harm in this particular context? What is the impact of that harm on the caregiver and or child or children? And can the harm be definitively known or identified to justify an intervention? So we talked a little bit last time about uh, surveillance and stigmatization. And I wanna bring it back here again as well. So surveillance leads to many women needing to protect themselves from cannabis stigma. Uh, it results in avoidance, minimizations and omissions from friends, family, and service providers to detract from their can- their cannabis use and avoid loss of personal power. So one of the studies that we looked at when uh, examining this issue described uh, described a scenario where a woman talked about being um, pregnant and feeling forced to satisfy the expectations of the social and medical community by abstaining from substances. And so the researcher, Teresa Kozak, points out that this reflects the little power that women retain during pregnancy under the threat of ongoing surveillance from child welfare agencies if they continue their use of cannabis. But again, we encourage you to think about what are the reasons behind cannabis consumption? What are the intentions, experienced benefits, the potential worries from the standpoint of the person consuming? Uh, And which acknowledges that uh, the societies have their own particular view of um, what these may be, but we're here once again, centering, centering the caregiver. And so this, you know, there's a dialogic and relational approach to practice without assumptions and views about cannabis influencing our decisions and actions. And so a responsible user paradigm also needs to be considered in the context of strengths based practice with families, where it's acknowledged how parents are managing possible cannabis related risks by consuming when their child. or their children are not home or are asleep and are keeping cannabis products out of reach. Um, And considering cannabis consumption from this standpoint creates space to critically reflect upon and reimagine the risk paradigm altogether. And so we're gonna chat a little bit about a case scenario. It will be open-ended but we'll encourage you to think about this um, and reflect on all of the things that we have talked about, all of the ways in which you have known risk and harm and have practiced and within those paradigms up until this point, uh, as we reflect on this this case scenario. So uh, there is a pregnant person who is in their third pregnancy and they report nausea uh, in the form of morning sickness. Uh, medication that was prescribed to navigate that and to mitigate that doesn't seem to be working and, it's n- and reports it not working at all, as we know that happens for many people. So that pregnant person reports uh, that they smoke some cannabis in the morning and it helps to alleviate their symptoms and while do- it doesn't interfere with their capacity to look after their two older children and the ages of those children are two and seven. So you can imagine developmentally uh, where that puts them uh, in terms of school interactions, needs and dependencies on the caregiver. So I'll invite you to think about this scenario and how we've talked about risk and harm and harm reduction from this perspective. What are the strengths? You know, What's working well in this case with this pregnant person? What are the worries? And what are the actionable next steps for both the worker and the caregiver? What are some things that that can be put in place? What are are some things to think about? What are some questions that you may have for that caregiver? And we invite you to think about those
3: kinds of things. I know that people are going to be tuning
1: in after the fact. I know we have a couple of um, participants. So, you know, our participants, please, please jump into the chat. And, uh, but it's interesting because I, this person on, based on who this case is based on just to offer like, you know, some context, if she, if she relied on the medication or kind of just tried to get through the nausea, she was literally, you know, in bed or in front of a toilet completely incapacitated from that nausea. Whereas if she, you know, was, was like, if I just get up and I um, smoke a bit of bud, like a first thing in the morning, then it actually like completely got rid of the nausea and it meant that she could get up, dress, feed, look after, you know, the two-year-old get the seven-year-old off to school. And it, it, it was a complete game changer for her. And so like, I really see this, um, her kind of looking at her menu of options. Um, She, and she had, she was already somebody that consumed cannabis previous to the, this pregnancy particularly. So she had experience with it, but, but not actually in relationship to nausea. Like it was something she's like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to see how this goes. And, um, but she was so familiar with, with the plant and familiar with kind of the effects on the body that she, um, you know, figured it would be something that could help her. So I just think it's, you know, um, her seeing the fact that she, you know, she wants to be up and ready to go for her, her kids, you know, um, feed herself too. Like that was the other thing too. She couldn't keep any food down. She was, she had no appetite. So she was also thinking about um, her pregnancy and, and the baby. And so like, she's like, I'm trying to balance all of these things. And so for me, you know, this is, this, this seems to be working given all that I have going on right now. So I, I
3: really saw that as a strength. So just maybe put in so p- other people can know, we have a comment in the chat that says, uh, strengths are she has
1: increased her parenting capacity quite a bit and could be the best for all of her children. Very self-aware of what she and her children need. Yeah. Thanks for that. It's interesting too, around the actionable next steps. Like I think we wanted to, you know, for for those of us that are working in kind of a a direct practice context, you know, think about, okay, um, if we were working with this parent, um, you know, what what questions might might we have? And if we do have worries, like how are we then working with that parent around, you know, mitigating any worries that there might be. And so it could be creating, um, like having that candid conversation, that candid supportive conversation that we, that we talked about and kind of um, seeing if she is, if there's any other supports that she might need, like if she's a, a single parent, um, you know, and, and if are there other folks that are around her again, that could, that she could lean on um, if, if she does need that additional support. I don't know if Rochelle, if you have, have any other reflections yourself.
2: No, I think everybody's caught them all. Thank you.
3: This next one, again, we're, we're realizing it's something we want you to go ahead and think about, um, after the
1: fact, but, um, you know, we also thought this was a, a good one to, um, to put in because there actually has been a lot of attention in research and practice around cannabis as like a, a harm reduction strategy to, um, you know, actually, not consume other substances. So things like um, withdrawal from alcohol um, and withdrawal from opiate-based um, um, substances. So the case scenario here is it's a it's a caregiver who um, has a long-term prescription for oxycodone, which is um, which is a which is a synthetic opiate in pill form, and they take this for chronic pain, but this caregiver you know, voices the fact that they don't like how um, the oxycodone that they take, it, you know, it creates grogginess and actually it's quite addictive because, the, and they have to keep kind of upping, um, you know, what they're taking. And they always have to have their prescription filled, otherwise they'll go into um, opiate withdrawal. So they're considering, um, is there something else out there that they could be using to manage their pain? Um, is there an alternative for, um, to alleviate this pain? This person has, you know, used uh, cannabis historically in a more of like a recreational kind of way and off and on um, with no kind of like um, strategy around using it specifically for pain management, but has noticed when they've consumed the cannabis that, you know, it it offers, it does offer some um, anti-inflammatory properties and some pain relief. So they've decided to start consuming cannabis as a way to wean themselves off of the oxycodone, and try it as a form of pain relief because of the ways that it helps with, um, anti-inflammation, but also it's helping them actually get a good night's sleep because the cannabis, you know, helps to kind of relax the muscles and then put them to sleep and keep them to sleep. Whereas, um, oxycodone does not, does not do that. And there are two children that live in um, the home with the caregiver ages three and 10. And so we thought this was a a more timely um, thing to consider because this is something that more and more people are kind of looking at, both in terms of clinical research and harm reduction practice in community organizations. And so, you know, here, what are the strengths? What is working well for this caregiver related to kind of their um, situation around their chronic pain? What might be the worries um, here uh, related to the fact that, um, you know, there's this kind of, usage of oxycodone and then kind of transition period consumption of cannabis in an attempt to find some sort of alternative treatment. And then what might be um, some actionable next steps that you as the worker might take, also that what you think the caregiver might wanna consider or is is considering um, in relationship to this scenario. So we invite, if there's any, in our small group for today, if folks have um, ideas, please pop them in the chat and then Rochelle, like I'm, I welcome, you know, your your reactions as well. So we do have a couple of um, comments in the chat, and so one of them says that in terms of what a worry might be is the safety issues in terms of where the cannabis is kept in the home, but also where the where is the oxycodone kept in the home? Like that's also a consideration. Is it kept um, in a space where the children couldn't necessarily access? And then this idea of talking about how deep of a sleep the person goes into, is there another parent who can respond to children in the night if needed? Absolutely. And so, that, and that would be the same with the oxycodone because there is that narcotic effect that um, it doesn't necessarily help with sleep but it absolutely has that narcotic effect. Um, so that w- those would be definitely things to, to think about. And then um, we also have a comment that it's a strength that they are actively and independently strategizing options, absolutely. And, you know, for us, it's, this is actually like harm reduction in action, because it's thinking about um, this person has identified harms for themselves related to the oxycodone consumption, even if it was prescribed, like this isn't working for me, I want to find an alternative, and I have the agency and I have like the, the knowledge to act and, to, and, you know, the wherewithal to actually figure this out. Um, and so absolutely, that's definitely
3: um, a strength. Rochelle, do you have anything to add to this one?
2: No, I think it's it's funny. I think everybody keeps getting them all like you, my thoughts, uh, you you steal all my thoughts and, and articulate them well. The
1: other thing that I've heard a lot about too is again the, the age of the older child being 10, you know, and I think about even in my own family, conversations about. You know a parent's medicine and like what does it mean in terms of you know if the cannabis is visible like not even just with storage but if it's visible out out and about um you know having conversations with children that are age-appropriate and kind of based on where they're development developmentally at around um what is it and why and why they can't like why it's not for them but also that this child is 10 so they might be starting to think about these things you know what i mean like just in terms of children um, so kind of being mindful of the age and stage of the, of the kids and uh, questions and curiosities that they might have, both in terms of a safety part, but also in terms of educational part, um, would be something I think, you know, might be a, a question or, you know, a point of conversation to have at
2: some point. The only other thing I'll add to that, Allison, and I agree because I think, I think back on, and I may be dating myself here on uh, those after school specials. Uh, that that we used to have, and what ages that that started to introduce uh, certain topics into into conversation. And ten was not was not outside uh, of those after the the target audience of those after school specials. But then when I think about ages three and ten, and ten in particular, um, also trying to think about the method of consumption and whether. You know there may be more overt ways uh, in which you know, you know uh, cannabis is consumed that warrants a con- an open conversation with a with a child at age ten, or if there if it's consumed in a, a in a method that. Um, that affords the the caregiver some privacy for a little while longer um as a measure of how to gauge uh when to have those conversations and whether to have those conversations
1: absolutely yeah it's very different like they're they're out take using a vape pen outside just like they would be smoking a cigarette versus like a package of of edibles which might look like gummy bears the child might be like, oh, mom, can I have one of those too? And then, and then having to have that conversation, right? And so, yes, um, totally.
2: And I'll add to that like a sublingual oil um, as something that is completely sort of more in the appearance of some kind of medication or vitamin or holistic, um, where you, the, the, the discussions or the optics of uh, a vape pen or a gummy look very different from a sublingual oil.
3: For sure. Thank you. So we're just mindful of the time, and we just
1: wanted to um, again thank everybody for, um, you know, having interest in this topic. You know, off, you know, um, last week all the participants, and this week, you know, please stay in touch with us. We really do want this to be shared a bit more widely, so please, p- please pass along the information to your colleagues and reach out. You know, if there's questions, if you want to connect, um, Rochelle and I are happy to do that. The other thing we wanted to share with you um, are some resources you can go and look at that are much longer and much more wordy <laughs> than all the words we have shared with you the last couple of weeks. So this first one is um, from um, our Mental Health Commission of Canada funded project. You will find the evidence brief, which is like a 70 page document, along with a summary from a dialogue process that we did, it's at this first link. Um, the second one is more um, arts-based research, community-based research that um, Rochelle and I were a part of, um, hearing directly from folks who are consuming cannabis during this perinatal period. Um, there's a report that you can take a look at. It was from a PhotoVoice project. Um, and so you can hear, again, more testimonials, more st- stories and experiences um, from um, folks with lived experience. And so related to that, we wanted to give a shout out and I'm hoping, um, Jay, this maybe can be circulated and, and Sarah with, um, because, you know, because it is coming up soon, is the mm-hmm. showcase that's happening. So there's a research showcase happening on October the 7th at 2 p.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time. And it's basically going to be a virtual showcase of the PhotoVoice um, project. And, and again, hearing directly from folks that are kind of you know um, consuming cannabis as caregivers, as parents and, and their experiences related to cannabis. So we wanted to make sure that folks were aware that that was happening and invite you all to, to take part.
4: That's awesome. it from us. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do a second part of this webinar and really focus on that application of your work to the field of child welfare. Uh, this whole series was uh, fantastic and I loved last week when you highlighted some of the sociocultural histories and issues with substance use, how this has really influenced um, biases regarding cannabis use in general and then this practice focus of part two really tied a lot of uh, your work together um, into social work practice and that's exactly what we love here at PART when discussing evidence-informed practice. Um, So I really wanted to give a kudos to both of you um, and I also did want to say, like, I really liked your focus on um, lived experiences and perspectives as a piece of empirical evidence. Um, because we often get caught up um, in more of like Western ideologies of research um, for more positivist types of lens. There's a single truth, uh, right versus wrong, uh, what's successful, what's not. And so I really love how both of you focus. Um, your work on voices of those you support, and how scientific inquiry can be viewed from multiple lenses, multiple perspe- perspectives. Um, so, thank you for highlighting that in your presentations. I really appreciate it. Um, so, we did. We have a couple questions that we had saved from last week that I do want to. Um, highlight. But before we get into those, I also want to uh, talk about what's next for both of you. I know through this work, you've probably seen um, some holes in the research, some holes in practice that you want to learn more about or teach more about. So uh, what's on your plans for the next few years um, with your research schedules?
1: I'll let Rochelle go first because um, she's basically embarking right now. <laughs>
2: So I'll just offer mine super quick. Uh, My research will focus on um, infant feeding practices. So not only how healthcare workers come to make recommendations around infant feeding practices for um, parents who consume cannabis, but also what are the tensions that exist around being believed um and and how that arises in conversations uh about uh about cannabis consumption um and all of the other factors that come into play in discussions about uh about concerns and risks uh with with feeding uh preterm infants and, and sick newborns mm-hmm. breast milk that um that's uh from parents who have consumed cannabis
4: mm-hmm. That's super interesting. That's great. I'm excited to see your research unfold. Yeah, and for
1: myself, um, so I kind of maintain kind of one foot in academia through this adjunct affiliation and and then one foot kind of in more direct practice and and thinking about kind of how research can actually, you know, be taken up day to day, you know, in kind of more routinized kinds of work. And so um, I'll continue kind of with the development of having a program of research related to this particular topic. And, you know, I'm actually really committed to um, like the application of research in practice, particularly in child welfare. So um, I've been doing kind of more local work um, in a child welfare context, um, rather than kind of think about it in this very abstract academic kind of way, like actually, like, you know, thinking about specific Mm-hmm. You know, cases with families and how like we can be applying what we know from research that we've done into those into that decision making process um so that's been really exciting so I'm I'm excited around that that kind of um stronger marriage between practice and and research because um it's difficult sometimes I think when we're based in academic yeah. um, centers alone to really kind of have that ongoing
4: dialogue right sure. so And I love that because that's why we're here. We research and practice together. Um, So I'm looking forward to working with you in the future as you practice and research in the field. (laughs) Um, So one of the questions that we had last week was around attention deficit and emotional regulation issues in children. And it was how do we know that this is due to cannabis use and not other factors like socioeconomic status or age of parent parent impacting these behaviors, as all of these factors can be co-related to cannabis use. So that was a great question, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, unfortunately we don't know. This is the problem with our current state of knowledge and the current state of research. And so like we had talked about last week, so the current research that has informed our like any sort of position statement or clinical practice guideline about cannabis that basically says, don't consume it. Um, you know, is relying on more retrospective or or prospective cohort studies where the the individuals that might, they might be kind of making these associations between, um, yes, are also kind of living with low income, are also living with lots of life stressors, right? That might also be having co-occurring things like housing instability, financial and employment instability, um, you know, adult conflict and histories of trauma, Um, you know, we know that there's kind of this, this long standing way that um, kind of adverse childhood events, you know, kind of begin to actually be seen generationally. You know, we've heard a lot about things like um, intergenerational trauma and kind of blood memory and how our bodies kind of carry these things forward. And so that is the problem. We can't actually tease out to say cannabis in and of itself independently causes things like emotional, um, you know, regulation challenges or attention um, challenges, because there's a lot, there could be other things going on, even other substance use, like alcohol, tobacco, um, other, other forms of substance use um, can also complicate these things. So at this point in time, we can't definitively and conclusively say that cannabis is the cause of these things. There has been a hint that yes, it could contribute to it. But we can't stand here and say, you know, you shouldn't use it because it can um, contribute to these things later in life unfortunately. But that I think with legalization, um, there was actually a, a huge focus of attention on cannabis because of the fact that it would be much more widely available. And the fact that healthcare providers were saying like, there's, there's actually some clinical things here we want to tease out and parse out because we are seeing it as something that could be used for pain management that can be used for things like um, epilepsy. It can be used for things like rheumatoid arthritis. So because there's been a lot of push in the research community to look at these things, I think over time we will start to see it more and more. Um, but as of this moment, we can't definitively say.
4: Thank you. Um, and the other question that came in, um, focused on more of like a, like what to say to colleagues or people when you hear somebody say something along the lines of this. So. When we talk about lack of conclusive evidence um, on the impact of cannabis in prenatal period, it's always followed up by, but why would they risk it? Like it's some sort of selfish choice to risk impact on a fetus or a child. How can I challenge that when I hear that by colleagues and friends? Yeah.
1: And Rochelle, please jump in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this precautionary principle is always used in everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the abstinence, like focus on like why why risk it, right? So I think um, first of all, that is that's a harmful statement. Like it's it's actually already introducing kind of a, har- a harmful um, uh, relationship in Definitely. terms of like actually understanding where that person's coming from. And so I think you know. I, I've, I've been in actually situations like that where I'm like, well, we actually don't know the reasons why they consume. The other thing is that, um, and again, this is more based on um, like me, the folks that I've worked with, but like, you know, folks that are consuming cannabis or maybe even other substances, you know, may already be feeling a lot of concern, questions, they're not sure, um, guilt and shame about it themselves. You know, even in the research that we did through this, waiting through the, through the weeds, parents also don't have the conclusive knowledge. And so they're actually going on what they know about how cannabis um, you know, works on their body, you know, what they know so far. And so when they're weighing kind of um, pros and cons and arriving at the decision, OK, I'm going to consume it in pre- pregnancy because it actually is doing all these really important things for me. They're also there is also some question for them too. So we can't assume that they're coming from this place of, oh, I don't care. Oh, I'm just gonna do it anyway. You know, we, you know what I mean? We have to kind of go into it with this compassion and empathy to say, like, together, we don't necessarily have this conclusive information. And so can we maybe invite a conversation to say, like, you know, what, it, what is the intention around it? You know what? What? What benefits does it bring to you for you to decide? Yes, consumption is my decision versus not consuming because it's again it's going to be very it's going to be variable depending on the person. Rochelle, please please weigh in here
2: too. The only other thing I was going to add, and and I agree with everything with what you said, Allison, is that like the classic example is the first case scenario that we went through, right where. Um, it really is an evaluation of what is the best of the options for that person, what may optimize their functioning. I think when we start to get into why would you risk it, we really run the risk of, of like mother blame narratives. We get into, you know, those characterizations of what makes an ideal mother that we know is is charged with all kinds of um, racism Heteropatriarchy, all of those things, white supremacy that come to frame a mother in a particular way. And the way in which it manifests here is um, self-sacrificing to a, to, you know, almost to her own or to her own detriment. Yeah. And so we, you know, we really have to push back against um, thinking about things in those ways because we really don't know from people what their alternatives are and what their adjudication of those reasons or those those options were that brought them to this. But also, you know, if they went the self-sacrificing route, what what would be the end degree and and how could they be, you know, um, could face, you know, punitive actions in different ways because of their unavailability to themselves and their children. And so I think we really have to, um, push back against what, what we actually don't know, yeah. as Allison said, and, and that is that adjudication, the reasons, the options and the adjudication and, and their reasons for their choice.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: And also the classism, like you,
1: you like all these, yeah. re, so right. And like kind of class privilege and, um, the different kinds of privileges that folks that are maybe on the decision-making side that we take for granted, right. That whereas these, there's, there could be a, a number of structural barriers that are, that are not actually creating a lot of choice and options for that person to decide otherwise. So we have to, I think we have to have a bit of compassion around that and actually bring more of that structural lens to the work because we're always, again, placing that individual as responsible and putting a burden of responsibility on them. Whereas we know that the context in which folks live structurally, sometimes it's, they, there's literally not a lot of other options or there's conditions that have been created that, you know, this is the solution that they turn to. And so I think we have to um, always consider that those macro level issues. Yeah, definitely.
4: Okay, um, all right, everyone, it does look like our time is up. Um, Thank you so much to our practitioners for tuning in today to listen to our webinar. We truly appreciate your support and engagement to part and your desire to be a lifelong learner. And we also wanna thank our presenters for being here today. Um, We love this platform, being able to connect researchers and practitioners. Um, So thank you guys so much Um, for all of our audience. Please watch your emails for information pertaining to our next webinar and definitely check out our website for the supplementary resources that were mentioned in the presentation that will be posted on um, this webinar's um, page, along with the practice points and audio recording um, and the video copy as well. So thank you everyone. And hope you all have a wonderful day.
3: Thanks everybody. Thanks, Rochelle. Thank you.
4: Bye.